Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. We thank God for uh, <laughs> grace and thank you for continuing on um, through a mild, mild suffering as we do not get to join in the same way and gather for worship together as we speak and love and uh, sing to one another. We do so in this way for God's glory, hoping that we will continue on to encourage each other with the word of our Lord. Um, Jordan wrote, I mean, really a, a wonderful liturgy this morning that really centered around the love of God, which has been poured into our lives. But then as we experience that, we actually end up living as imitators of God and loving one another this way. This is actually Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. And just, I just want to make a sh just a quick shout out. Jordan put together, because I told him that we would be covering up to 5, 2. And today I actually called an audible this morning and said, I think we're going to stop at the end of the chapter because I think 5, 1 and 2 are so worth our time that we're going to spend all of next week on chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. So with that being said, we may have a little bit of different focus if your minds have been prepared for uh, this, this sort of preaching as uh, Jordan set up the liturgy to go that way. So this morning, let's start by reading um, Ephesians 4, and we're actually going to start in verse 17, where we started last week. We talked about 17 through 24 last week. This week we'll go from 25 to 32. Um, but I think it's very helpful for us to read this context as we lead in, because it's very much connected. So if you'll follow along with your, in your Bibles, we'll be in Ephesians 4, 17 through the end of the chapter. This is God's word, Ephesians 4, 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learn Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now verse 25, our text for today. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to the one who hears. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
Let's take a moment and pray together as we enter this time. All-sufficient King, when we come into your presence, we see the glory of your perfections, the throne of eternal and universal empire, that you truly are the King. The 10,000 times 10,000 who minister to you, these angels, Lord, impress our minds with the consciousness of your greatness, not to drive us away from you, but to inspire us in prayer and humility to approach you. Not to diminish our confidence in you, but rather to lead us to admire you and your great condescension. The fact that in humility, you came and brought us near by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been mindful of us. You have visited us. You have taken charge of us from our birth, cared in all conditions for us. Lord, you've fed us at your table. You've drawn the curtains of love around us, giving us new mercies every morning. Don't let us forget then, Lord, that we look even for greater blessings than these, a hope beyond the grave, the down payment and foretaste of immortality with you, holiness, wisdom, strength, peace, ultimate joy. And all of these you provide for us in Christ. We grieve to think how insensible we often are and we have been to your claims of authority and the evidences of your love. How little, Lord, we often credit your truth. Lord, how often we have not trusted your promises. We've not feared your threats or obeyed your commands. We've not welcomed your warnings or responded to your grace. But all the while, in the midst of this, Lord, although we deserve death and judgment, we yet live because of the gospel. May your goodness always lead us to repentance and your long-suffering prove our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, I'm not sure how many of you follow um, our political process uh, around this time of year. I think a lot more of us are you know, acutely aware of what's going on, at least somewhat. Even if we don't normally watch the news, we know what's about to happen. It seems almost like the Olympics. And what I mean by that, it's like every four years it comes around. Oh, yeah, it's that time of year again. We have to watch this thing and see all these things. We get geared up. Um, millions of dollars are spent in preparations. We get to watch the presidential candidates compete for our hearts and minds. Um, but instead of giving out medals at the end for first, second, and third, we vote on who will best do in the White House to serve us as the chief executive. I mean, it's kind of similar, right? But some of you have watched this in some ways and uh, probably followed it, whether it's on uh, actually watching television. My children is like, do people actually call it television? Was that what it really was called? You know, or maybe you watch it on your newsfeed or watch it on your phone or you just keep up with the headlines. Um, but most of us have at least caught up and understand what's going on. Um, but one of the things that interests me in all of this is the term fact-checking. Uh, what I mean is we take it for granted now, but that actually hasn't always been part of the American vernacular. That wasn't always something that we talked about and demanded. Back in 1923, a woman named Nancy Ford was hired for Time Magazine as a secretarial assistant. Uh, she started out doing very normal things, but eventually she was asked not to edit the papers and the articles, but she was asked to research the veracity or the truthfulness of some of the claims that some of the writers were making. 
she was asked to see if they were, in fact, telling the truth. The job, as you can imagine, was difficult and painstaking without the internet, and so they had to do tons of research, staying up far into the night so that the papers would be ready in the morning or the, or the magazines would be ready to actually go to print. She was asked to do this job, and it was difficult. But as she did it and did it well, it earned Time magazine really a, a reputation for being a careful, uh, dependable journal, I mean, at least for the time. And in 1938, um, Time magazine ran an ad in Collier's Weekly, which was an American magazine, looking for researchers and fact-checkers. Uh, and this is the first time that that term ever came onto the scene in American life at all. Prior to this, a large amount of trust was given to these writers and editors to only make claims that could be substantiated, that were true, to only things that were in fact real. Fast forward about 80 years, here we are, and fact-checking uh, really has kind of become a, a way of life for us as we interact and hear people out. It's a profession. It's even a way for some to spin the story back on others. I mean, we even need fact-checkers to check the fact-checkers because they know that those ones are actually supporting one of the other sides. It's unfortunate, but it's not really surprising that truth in our society then, unfortunately, has become less and less important. The fact that it would be something that is normal for us to have a fact checker and then even weigh the amount of problems on this side versus the problems on that side and almost shrug our shoulders about it says something about the way that we view truth. I mean, it's, he's a, the person's a politician, right? I mean, they, they can kind of say whatever they want to. We only believe some of it anyway. I, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm being somewhat cynical here. I'm not some old sentimental fool like knowing and thinking that there's a golden age of journalism back there. No, I know that all the ages have had problems telling the truth with deceit and lies. But it does seem to be more and more difficult as we consider the things around us and so many different inputs for our lives to discern what is the truth and what is not the truth. To hear from our leadership, from our news outlets, and even from the academic sector to know what the truth is. Truth matters. We, we know that intuitively. We know that we actually need to make decisions based on truth. That if we're to make a decision based on something completely different, we may have an outcome that eventually actually has dire consequences, potentially dangerous or maybe just foolish. But the truth has to be the ground on which we walk. You can't make decisions. If you don't know the truth, you can't plan ahead properly. If you don't know the truth, everything slowly starts to crumble and inevitably, you lead to chaos and really to destruction. Now, I'm not here to, to rail on our news system or make fun of our leadership, but I am saying that truth matters. Paul knows this, though. But he's not only concerned about whether the presidential candidate the facts right during their debate. He's concerned about all of reality, like universal reality. He knows that the rest of the world does not see or understand or believe what is really going on in the world. They really actually believe and perpetuate a lie, falsehood. Last week, we worked through Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, and we learned that uh, we are not to any longer live like the Gentiles do, lives of futility based on only things that they can perceive with their own natural eyes, lives that are separated from the life of God, ignorant 
and lacking true understanding. We learned that our identity had truly changed in our conversion, but that it did not automatically, robotically change our behavior. That's not the way that God works. Much of the New Testament attests to this truth and shows us that we now being, and that it is a process of progress in a sense. We, we talk about that, there's a, a, a helpful discipleship term said progressive sanctification as we continually to be make more like Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit's work. That's how God works and we see that around us. In Ephesians 4, 17 through 24, Paul reminded us that learning Christ that term was not a clever way to add in some Jesus morality for these Christians, but rather learning Christ was like being blind and now for the first time in your entire life being able to see what is around you. It's amazing. But it's not just some sort of harmless blindness. It's one that damns you if you are never cured of this blindness. It's like operating your whole life on a, sound, like on, a, on a basis of foundational facts that you think are true. You operate on them, but you one day realize that they are deceitful falsehoods that are actually meant to lead you to the exact opposite direction of reality. Paul tells these Christians that they are not to live in the darkness. They are no longer to live lives of degrading, dangerous, deceitful falsehoods but rather they are to live according to how they have learned Christ. What is reality? Now, admittedly, after we went through last week, we saw that he doesn't give us very much detail in those verses. He told us, basically, that we had to stop living like Gentiles, and why? Because of Christ. This week, though, he is going to unload a whole heap of commands on us, exhortations, imperatives, He's going to bring up some specific behaviors and then tell us that we shouldn't do them any longer. And then he's going to bring up new behaviors and tell, them we, tell us we should do these things. So we hear and say, great, a list of rules is what we're preaching on today. This should be easy, right? I mean, you got some do's over here, some don'ts over here. Pretty simple. Uh, now, maybe, I, maybe I'm unique. I highly doubt it in one sense. But, uh, you know, didn't we all mostly as children hate the rules, or at least bucked against them in some way that we didn't understand. I mean, you know, sometimes they saw they seemed restrictive and annoying, and although I didn't know this word as a child, arbitrary, like they didn't have a specific purpose. I can remember thinking uh, this about certain rules sometimes, even asking the question, why? Why does this exist? I mean, when I was a young child thinking, why in the world do I have to brush my teeth if I'm just going to lose all these teeth anyway? That doesn't make any sense. Or why do we eat the, you know, in our first half of lunch, we have to do it totally quietly when I go to school. Why that? I mean, I know what some of you are thinking, like Chris wasn't very bright when he was a child, and that's, that's true. But I just want to bring up the fact that as children, we rightly get trained to obey rules, to respect authority. To understand as children what we were supposed to do is say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, understand what is being said to us and respond in obedience. Every command that we were given, we weren't to ask too many questions or else this would be somewhat rebellious or maybe disrespectful. Even as a parent, I, I will admit, when my, my children ask me a question about why I tell them to do something, I try to give them reasonable responses. I, I try to. But eventually, if, if you're like me, eventually you break down and you eventually end up saying, because I said so, that's the answer. That's all you need right now. 
When it comes to these commands, though, Paul doesn't treat us like children. He doesn't give us commands and then say, because I said so, go do them. Paul is giving us commands, things that we need to do and obey. But if you and I will pay attention here, we will realize that these are not arbitrary rules or ones that are too difficult and too heady for us to understand. But rather, these rules are about a right and joyful way of living in true reality, not in lies. Paul will teach us that the commands that are given to us in these verses are for a purpose. They work together to produce something wonderful and good. Now, before we get started into this, on a different note, I'll just mention that it's no surprise that those other religions, uh, philosophies of life, will take some of these commands and echo them, saying, oh yeah, we wouldn't do these things either. We shouldn't, or we agree with all these things. We applaud them. We'd even practice these things. We'd even require these things for our religions or our philosophies to do. They even claim that, you know, doing these things, because you guys do them and we do them, must mean we're after the same thing. Religion of doing good things to other people. But Paul knows better than that, and so should we. He will not have us doing lists of rules, performing religious duties, without understanding the truth. He's explaining to us that obedience in these areas is not only to please God in some sort of transactional way, as though these actions themselves, once committed, are like points on some sort of divine, eternal scoreboard of holiness, so that Chris Lowndes now has two check marks versus the other people who only have one, or another person has three who's more holy. No, that's not the way this is seen at all. When we consider the law of God, think about the Bible in general. I love it when David says, first I don't understand this at all, when he says, I love your law. What a ridiculous statement. I hate rules, usually. But why would David say, I love your rule, I love your statutes, I love your law? It's because they tell the truth about reality. It's because they reveal who God is and how we are then to live our lives in light of who he is. He's explaining to us something far more important than just a few arbitrary rules. These actions of obedience then are real, in real time and space. They actually do something unto God, but also to the people that are around us. To the Gentile, or as we talked about last week, the pagan, the one who doesn't fear God and therefore doesn't have any understanding, these actions look ridiculous. They look foolish. They seem to be inefficient and useless acts that really don't accomplish anything for this life whatsoever. And so you can have one or two responses. One is say, reject that, I'm going to live however I want to. Or they can see those things as useless but they realize that that action must be required by some sort of God somewhere. We have to do the things that make him happy, and then we'll do those things. And that's what religion is all about, doing things you're not exactly sure of, you don't really know why, you don't really want to do them, but just denying yourself must be good enough for that God in some way, and so that's a good thing. Paul will show us that these commands, though, have a purpose. These rules are guidelines to show us how to live according to reality. Now, we start in our passage remembering that we've gone through an immense change in our lives. We've gone from death to life, from completely ignorant to being enlightened, from enemies of God to sons and daughters of God. And probably most starkly in our last passage is that we have gone from falsehood 
or lies or incorrect perceptions of reality now to understanding the truth, to seeing things how they really are. That's a, I mean, As Paul says in verses 22 through 24, that in our conversion, we put off the old self. And what was happening is our, 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 we are being renewed by the spirit of, in the spirit of our minds and that we have put on the new self. It's with this idea that Paul starts in verse 25 here. So take a look. He says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So that little statement right at the beginning, having put away falsehood. This is the same verb, put away, that we actually saw back in verse 22, translated put off your old self. Same exact verb here, said a little bit differently. Paul starts with this phrase that can be translated either since you have put off this falsehood, like something that has already happened, or actively, it actually can be used almost as a command, You're like, almost like you are to put away falsehood or lies. It's more of a command in that way. So it's, it's certainly true that we are to actively be putting away falsehoods and lies. You and I should refrain from, not refrain like we were just like, oh, we're just going to leave it alone, but like actively not lie. We should actively put away dishonesty. But I'm actually quite convinced that that's not the only thing that Paul is talking about here, telling the truth, being honest when someone asks you a question. I think he's actually carrying through the idea of this last paragraph that we studied last week, helping us understand how to operate according to our true identity, the new self. Thus he says, having put off falsehood, this old way of life, the deceitful, empty, futile, ignorant way of thinking and living, having put off that life, rather you should live in this way. Now, between verses 25 and 32, there are 11 different verbs, imperative verbs or exhortations or commands in this section, 11 of them in this short spot. I mean, you can see all of them. It says, you should speak truth. You should be angry. You should not sin. The sun should not set on your anger. You should not give the devil opportunity. The thief should not steal. The thief should labor. Corrupt language should not come out of you. You should not grieve the Holy Spirit. All kinds of anger should be taken away from you. You should become kind. With, with that many commands, it's tempting for us to just start rolling in and barreling through all these different commands, talk about how to do it, making sure we do our best to understand it, and move on to the next ones. We have so much to get through. But this would be a mistake. It would not properly understand what Paul is doing here. Paul puts this together in a way that's actually meant to help us understand that he's still striving for us to be Christians in the body of Christ and therefore to act a certain way that is in keeping with that identity a way for us to live according to the truth and not just a download of all the Christian rules. And now I'm just doing my best to keep those rules if I can. The first statement is both a specific command then in this big list, but it's also a kind of title to tell us what he's going to talk about here. He says in verse 25, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, the obvious first thing he says is tell the truth to each other. Don't be liars. You should be honest and proactive speakers of the truth to one another. A Christian should be marked by telling the truth. He or she should have nothing to hide from. I mean, it's, it's always best for us to tell the truth to one another. I mean, even if it puts us in a bad light or we know that telling that truth is going to be harmful to us in some way or another, 
even if it's sin, we recognize that there is forgiveness and grace. Even if it's natural suffering that would come from something like this, we recognize that we have Jesus Christ who's continually bearing us up. But I don't think that this is the only thing that Paul is getting at here. It certainly is true that we ought to be telling the truth regular to one another. If you turn to Zechariah 8.16, I know you don't turn there very often, or at least I, I, I often don't, but Zechariah 8.16, you are going to see something that has a familiar ring to it. I'm going to read it for you here. Zechariah 8.16 says this, These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. To give you a little bit of a background, Zechariah is telling the Jews about the new Jerusalem, about Zion, with promises and descriptions in verses 1 through 15, leading up to our section here. In verse 16, he turns to tell them, that's the, like the remnant, the surviving people of Israel, how they are to live in this new Jerusalem. In verse 3, he actually calls it, in your ESV, you're going to see it there as faithful city, but it's probably better translated as a city of truth, like that it is characterized by truth. Uh, they, they are to be, therefore, not only by their speech, as you can see in verse 16, but also almost as their characteristic, as the vibe that people get from them, they are a city of truth, of reality. Here in Ephesians 4, so we'll come back now for a minute, Paul is reaching back to this passage, to this language found in Zechariah, and bring it to a fuller and more significant fulfillment. When Paul says, speak the truth to your neighbor, he is taking Zechariah's command for the new Jerusalem people and applying it to these Christians. Thus, he's actually saying even more than just be truthful. He's saying that you are to act as the new Jerusalem people, as God's new people, as, get this, the household of God. We've already seen this in Ephesians. God's people, then, are to be a beacon of the truth, characterized not by falsehood, but by living according to ultimate reality. So when he tells them, here in verse 25, to speak truth to their neighbor, he isn't only telling them to be honest with their lips. If you remember last week, Paul explained to us that the Gentiles walked by their own perception of reality and that that perception was futile, that perception was ignorant, and that perception was separated from the life of God. It did not tell the truth. It was essentially a reality built on lies. Paul's words in our passage from last week help us to see that, that our conversion, in our conversion, in trusting Christ, the gracious action of Christ to save us, in that action, we have had our eyes opened and that we understand what's really going on now. In Christ, we see reality. We have learned Christ. We can see the truth. And it is to that truth that now he speaks in verse 25. It's almost like a title of all that's going to be said and saying, this is how your lives should communicate the truth, not only to the outside world, but specifically to one another. Not only should we be people who literally speak the truth to one another, we should be people who live in such a way that our words, our actions, our thoughts, even our reactions communicate the real truth to one another. That Christ is king, that his word is true, that we are eternal beings made for the glory and enjoyment of God. And that our 
Verse 25 commands us to live our lives according to the truth that we now have to come to, we have now come to know in Christ. And embedded in this very first verse of this section is the reason that Paul is giving us these commands. Now, I, I, I wouldn't want to just let the, pack, the cat out of the bag too early, but it's pretty hard because Paul does it right here. He tells us to speak the truth to one another because, or he says, for we are members one of another. Remember how this chapter started out back at the beginning of chapter four. Let me read it to you. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Here we go. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What is he talking about? Unity across all people and peace for our fellow men? No. He's talking about that which the Spirit of God has put together. He's talking about the church. So when we get to this headline command here in verse 25, and we see that he bases his reason for this command and the fact that we are members one of another, it's really important that we realize that Paul is giving us real ways to maintain unity. Something he told us back at the beginning of chapter 4. Some of those things we, didn't, we couldn't answer. We had to kind of ask the questions, how do we maintain this unity? He is now giving us hard and fast, real things that we can do to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He is saying that our action, Chris Lowndes' actions, my personal actions, your personal actions will affect the unity in this body of Christ. We're going to see uh, another clear and powerful reference to this in verse 30. But for now, it's important enough that you hear that Paul's exhortation to us is rooted in his agenda to maintain unity in the church. This now plunges us in then to this list of commands. There are going to be 10 imperatives now going through here in the next seven verses. But Paul is really going to mainly be dealing with four pagan issues in these verses. Now, again, there's more commands than that, but he's really centering this discussion around four pagan issues. He's going to introduce anger. He's going to talk about stealing. He's going to teach about corrupting speech. And he's going to address deep-seated, prolific anger. So I want you to just take a look at your Bibles, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, now, Paul is not starting things off with a command to be angry, as though it's a virtue. Like, hey, you guys need to get angry out there. No, he's not saying that. It's a combination that's translated correctly here. The idea, though, is when you do get angry for right reasons, we should not allow that anger to take on a sinful character in our lives. If you remember, James actually told us this in his first chapter. He said, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Four, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, this is helpful for us. It's a helpful hint. <clears throat> our anger and our wrath cannot, it cannot produce the good results of righteousness and justice that God can do. Often we want it to, if we're really honest, but we have to remember that's actually God's work. Our work is to rightly address one another our behaviors, and when situations come up that cause a struggle and maybe some sort of anger to pop up, we must address it. We must address the issues almost immediately so that we cannot grow bitter 
or have it fester inside of us and have some sort of wedge driven between a brother and another brother in the body of Christ or a sister and a brother in the body of Christ. We must address those things quickly in dealing with them in love. And that's why Paul indicates this in the second part. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, it's probably safe to say that this command doesn't mean that if you are in the dinner hour and the sun is going down and you realize something that you're angry about and you haven't dealt with it, that you have to call and interrupt someone else's in their dinner hour to do it. Or call someone in the middle of the night because you realize, better safe than sorry, get this thing done. The point that Paul is making is don't allow time to elapse, another day to go by that you have not dealt with the truth of what's going on between you and another brother or sister. He's trying to help us understand that we need to take these things. When there's something that has bothered us and it creates in us some sort of anger, we need to deal with that almost immediately if we can. And if we understand this correctly, that's why he's going to add the next thing. It should not be left to fester or grow to be a barrier between us and another believer. That's why he says the third thing. Take a look in verse 26. He says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then this in 27. And give no opportunity for the devil. Remember that we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. That we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That Jesus, when he died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he was set far above all authority and power and dominion, but that all of that wicked realm now rages against Christ and his people. Paul is saying that our anger, this one that he's talked about, if left to fester and divide us, is a way for the devil to gain a position or an opportunity in the battle against God's elect church. We've literally opened up the door and said, come on in, we're ready for you to do battle in here. Actually, we just don't know it. But Paul's making us aware that that's exactly what we're doing when we remain angry with one another and don't settle this inside. If we remember who he is, Satan's a murderer. He's a liar. And he is willing to do anything he can do to rip apart the church. And Paul is telling us here that sinful anger for a Christian is like handing over battlegrounds to the enemy, allowing him more space, more opportunity to mount an attack from inside the walls of God's people. Do you understand this? That This means that our sin, which we think is personal only, that our sin and anger toward one another affects the unity of the body. This must not be allowed in the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this morning, how often is it that you have righteous anger and that you deal with it right away? Um, I'll admit that I think that me included, most of us think that anger is an unfortunate and respectable sin. And that, you know, we all struggle with it, but as long as we don't blow up too much, it's okay. You know, we all deal with it. It's just not that bad. Paul is crystal clear here. He says that that will result in the devil having a place within our midst to wreak havoc on the church. This is serious. Anger is a sinful issue. But if we don't deal with it immediately... If, if we are doing it rightly, if we are righteously handling this, we ought to right go to our brother and sister and deal with this and call them to repentance. 
We must confront one another graciously with the truth in love. We should be, as James told us, slow to anger because there's a lot at stake here. Again, we're opening up the church to attack. Let's go ahead and move on to verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now let's talk about a thief for a minute. A thief is not only one who goes to the mall and grabs something that will fit in his pocket or drives a car on a dark alley away that's not theirs. Someone can be a thief by stealing from their employer. Sometimes it's goods and materials. Other times it's actually time itself and labor, not doing that which you have signed up to do, that what you claim that you have done. A thief can also be one who tears down the community of God because he or she constantly takes from others or steals from others. Of course, that can be material things, but it can also be time. It can also be unrighteous expectations and attitudes of one another that corner people into doing things that they do not have to do according to Scripture and they aren't willing to do. Paul tells this person to stop stealing and instead to work, to labor, to toil, good, honest work. So the fact that what they're supposed to be doing is not exposing each other, like taking from each other resources, but instead their work should be done for a different reason. His reasoning points to the bigger point. Why should this person stop stealing and start working? It is so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He's pointing out that instead of stealing, work hard, do honest work that is your work, not someone else's that you're stealing, so that you will have an opportunity when someone is in need that you also can be generous and share. He is to help another person who has a need. Brothers and sisters, I'll ask it again. If, 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 if you haven't heard it in church before, which I doubt, here it is. You should stop stealing. It is not the way that Christ has taught us to be living in reality whether from a store or from your work or from your brothers and sisters in Christ. By nature, the act of stealing is secretive. So I don't know if anyone's struggling with theft in our body, if there's a kleptomaniac amongst us. I don't know. But I can tell you this. You should still be called to the truth. And God knows that this is something that should not define his people. It is a lie. It is not the way that we should react. First of all, it distrusts God, the one who actually provides for all of us and everything for us, but it also harms others. In that, it actually breaks both the first and the second commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Instead, let us be people with generous work ethics, recognizing that resources are earned for the blessing of the body. Yes, of course, to love and take care of your family as well, but Paul tells us to work so that we might have enough to share with others who are in need. Let's pick up in verse 29. He next says this, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I, I may have heard this incorrectly, but I feel like when I was growing up, Often this was turned to, and it was taught that this is one of the places that Scripture talks about cuss words, that this is where it tells us we shouldn't be living this way and no four-letter words, that this use this rotten language in our conversations. 
And I, I do want to say that we ought to use excellent and appropriate words in our speech. But I don't think this is what Paul is saying at all here. He isn't banning four-letter words. I mean, in Greek, maybe there are six-letter words. I'm not really sure. But he's not doing that here. Remember our context. He is talking about speech that would tear someone else apart, tear them down, corrupting words that act like gangrene, that spread and hurt, like rotten words towards another that would cause them pain and damage those on the receiving end. He is saying that all this kind of talk, this corrupt talk, should not be what is on the lips of a Christian. It's something that would damage another person, whether it's directly at them, get this, or directly about them to someone else. This is corrupt talk. And he says you have nothing to do with this kind of stuff. Rotten, corrupting communication. It should not come out of your mouths any longer. Instead, so he turns now, right? He brought us this thing, now he tells what we should do. Instead, we are, should be using good speech, good talk. That is speech that builds up the body. Notice the word that he uses there, build. Also important as we're thinking about this body, this edifice, this edification, the idea of a building, a household. He ends up talking about the same thing that he did in the last verse, although we can't quite see it in English. I just want to point this out. In English, he says, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion. I mean, that idea fits the occasion is also rightly translated for the building up of the need. You remember that word? In the last command, he told the thief to work so that he could share with the one who had a need. And now he says, don't let corrupt communication come out of your mouth, corrupt talk, rotten language that hurts other people, but rather speak a word that would build someone up who has a need. And he goes further than that. Paul's calling us to stop the old Gentile way of selfishness and autonomy and only thinking about me first and start thinking about one another, building each other up with our resources and with our words. Specifically here, he even makes it more explicit that it's a blessing or a giving because he calls it grace to each other. By blessing and encouraging one another with the truth, Paul knows that this will aid in building up the body. He knows that words matter and that true, encouraging, edifying words are gracious and aid us in the building up of the body of Christ. But as he rounds out this idea, we get the theological foundation and motivation for our obedience in these ways. He says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, this is not some unrelated guilt trip. This is on topic. He, is, he isn't like, you know, corrupting talk. That's the worst of all the things. It's the worst. And so, like, you know, if you do that thing, that really grieves the Holy Spirit. All the other ones, man, they're just kind of bad rules. But this one, it's terrible. All the other sins, I mean, you shouldn't do them, but this one causes the Holy Spirit to grieve. No, what's happening here is it fits nicely in what Paul has just told us. He's explained about right talk, right communication, that it's for the building up of the body. It is the building up of that which the Spirit put together. Any of these actions grieve the Holy Spirit of God who has worked God's grace to do something that no one else could do. He has worked God's grace into each and every individual building us into the body of Christ. Remember verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3. 
eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. This is his work. This is his joyous task. And when we tear it down through our actions of untruth, of falsehood, of deciding to live like a Gentile, it is grievous to our God. Now, it's tempting for us to think that this is some kind of divine arm twisting here, you know, to tell us to do something and then make us feel bad that, you know, if we do it, we're going to hurt the feelings of the Holy Spirit. That is not what's going on here. The Holy Spirit isn't insecure. And, and this isn't about us losing our salvation either. It is about Paul making us loved ones aware of what we are doing. There are times, and you can understand this if you're a parent, You've taught your children. You've loved them. You've given things to them. You have tried as best you can by God's grace to mold them into good human beings that would know Christ and grow and live a certain way. But there are times when our children will grieve our hearts by their actions. They will hurt us because unknowingly they will take down some of the things that we worked so hard to put in place for them. In that moment, is it not right for another adult or another person to come along to that child and say, do you know that what you're doing grieves your parents and it hurts them because they've worked all this time to grow and help and love and give to you? I recognize that's just a human analogy, but it is right for us to do that and help us to understand. What Paul is doing here is coming along to say, hey guys, what you're doing in your anger with your corrupt communication, you're not thinking about it. You think about it just between you and the next person. What you are doing grieves the Holy Spirit who has put this whole body of Christ together. Paul's not playing a game here. He is showing us that the one who sealed us for the day of redemption, in other words, the one who guaranteed that we will be resurrected one day with Christ in the new life, that when we sin, we grieve the third person of the Trinity. Brothers, sisters, what kind of words do you speak to one another? Maybe to your spouse, maybe to your uh, believers that are in your community group. Maybe what words do you speak about other Christians, maybe who aren't in your community group, to other Christians? What kind of speech comes out of your mouth? I'll ask the opposite question. Are you speaking to one another or about one another in ways that build up the body? And I'm not talking about flattery here either. That's garbage. We're not talking about that. I'm talking about truth. That's why he put this whole thing underneath the realm of speak the truth to your neighbor. I'm not talking about that. It isn't true. I'm talking about words of truth that can help a person grow in Christ to fullness and holiness and love and joy. Is the communication that defines the way that you talk to one another like the way that Paul describes it here? Corrupt, tearing down, or that which edifies and builds up the body. Lastly, let me read verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It's so important that Paul returns to the subject of anger. He knows that there is more going on than just a few people who get righteously angry and they're like, oh, but I don't deal with it right away. I should do that more often. No, he knows that we all commit this sinful act. He lists off a whole host of different facets of anger that must stop. 
He talks about that inner brooding of bitterness, that deep-seated stuff that poisons our own minds and then eventually flows out to others. He talks about that anger that strikes out and enacts some sort of you know, wrath on some other person, whether it's verbal or actual judgment to hurt another person. He talks about clamor, probably not a word that we use very often. It's a very nice way of saying fighting, shouting, outbursts that we would call someone losing it. I think it's fair to say that in some of our lives, we've either experienced or regularly committed clamoring against those who are close to us. That's usually where it happens. He addresses slander or anger that would purposefully go against others, go to others and cut another person down for the sole purpose of hurting them and make myself look better. Slander for their reputation or their, their character. Then finally, he kind of just adds it to the end because it's a total catch-all, this idea of malice, ill will. I mean, it's really a catch-all for describing any sort of angry, wicked attitude toward another person. And all this, he says, put it away. You're done with it. And in response, instead of all this, what are we supposed to do? We are to become kind, tender-hearted, ones who forgive each other when we've been wronged. Paul knows that we are wronging one another, unfortunately, still. We have not been made perfectly whole yet. We still wrong one another. That we will sin against each other. But there is a right way for us to deal with it. And that's not the shouting match. It isn't that bitterness or the cold shoulder for hours or, let's be honest, days on end that we might give our spouse. It's not like that. It isn't, the right response isn't for us to talk about a person behind their back. No, it's to confront that person in love with a tender, compassionate heart. One that is truly kind and gracious to them. Patient, waiting, as we saw in James. And as this person understands and seeks to restore unity, you and I then must forgive them. We cannot hold grudges or remember people's sins for a long time after and bring it back up again for something they did. We must forgive them. That is not the way that Christ would do it. Consider this. The greatest part of all this is that he gives us our standard and motivation in our own experience on the receiving end. Christ. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. You and I have experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ. By God's grace, he has revealed himself to us, his greatness and his glory. He has shown us our sinfulness against him, our rebellion, and the debt that we cannot pay. And he's shown us the glory of Jesus Christ, the one who took the wrath of God in our place. It is with gratitude and humility that we turn to Christ in faith for forgiveness from our sin. And God graciously, abundantly gives it to us. We have experienced the forgiveness of God in Christ, and so we must quickly also forgive our brothers and sisters. This kind of action doesn't just work well for interpersonal relationships. Think about this, what he's been saying. This heals the whole body as we graciously love one another, ready to act like our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. When we have been wronged and that person turns to try and make it right and say, I was wrong. 
Will you forgive me? And it's a terrible, heinous thing. And they've done it 10 times. Forgive. That we would continually be the medicine of Jesus Christ to one another. This is how Christ would have us to act. We've covered a lot today. The commands that Paul is relaying to us are not arbitrary. They're not purposeless. But rather, they are for the building up of the unity of the body of Christ in the Spirit. So, let us then, therefore, not just tolerate these rules, not get as good at checking them off and making sure we keep on praying in our accountability groups to do this better or that better, but rather, let us eagerly pursue these things as a way of life in the truth, in reality, understanding that these things are actually for our good, for our eternal benefit, and for the building up of other people. We then are thankful for the gracious gift that God would give us these words to make us more like him and to build up the body of Christ. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. You are gracious to give it to us. You are kind. You forgive. Even as we turn this morning in prayers of confession and recognizing our sin against you, ones that we have committed probably already this morning, that we will continue to commit, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us, and we know in Jesus Christ you have forgiven us. We thank you for this, and we ask that we would be people who would not blow up or hold bitterness in or steal from another, that we would not act as the Gentiles do, as though we all act in this perception of reality that isn't true. Help us, Lord, instead to live according to the truth that we know in Jesus Christ. Lord, we recognize that all this is really good, but if you won't do anything inside of us, we can't do anything about it. And so I return to that beautiful center command and reminding us that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. This is done through the work of the Holy Spirit, and we ask you for more of it to be done. Give us a holy ambition to trust and obey you, and would you do the work that we cannot do? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.